the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, I'm Corey Haley, and thanks for tuning in to the Intersection Education Podcast. My conversation today is with Dr. Ryan Dunn. Ryan is a lecturer at Melbourne University. He started his career as a primary teacher before moving to study under John Hattie of Visible Learning fame. Looking at the effectiveness of practitioner research as a form of teacher professional learning. He's advised educational leaders and worked with teachers and students throughout Victoria, Queensland, New York City, California, and now Alberta. What I appreciate about Ryan is that he brings a great perspective to conversations around education, having both the academic knowledge and also the lived experience of working with schools to put research into practice. He presents a great balance of how research can inform what we do in schools, but also how researchers can learn from working in the field. I was able to speak with Ryan during the Alberta Teachers Association ULEAD Conference in Banff, Alberta, and if you're interested, I highly recommend you check it out. I think you will really enjoy our conversation and learn from the insights that he brings. How you doing, Ryan? I'm really good. That's good. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Uh, we are in beautiful Banff, a place that, uh, that you know. I heard that you were living abroad for a year, and uh, let's get right into it. You, you, you had a little experience in Banff. Tell me about yeah, your living abroad year. Well, so I suppose I'm the, the typical Australian that comes over and does a ski season in, uh, in Canada. So I flew into Vancouver, caught a bus to Banff and, yeah, spent a season here in, in 2000. Um, I remember getting off the bus in Banff and it was minus 32 and I walked to the, to the hostel I was staying at and by the time I got there I thought, what have I done? I don't think I can handle it here, <laughs> but it wasn't quite that cold for the rest of the season. That's awesome. It seems like every second person that I see here has an Australian accent, at least the, the people who are working here. But uh, yeah, that's fun. And then you, uh, I heard you, you didn't stay in Banff though, you kept going, hey? Kind of across the continent a little bit, hey? Yeah, so at the so I was living in staff accommodation and um, one, of, one of my friends that I was living with, Brad, was from Halifax. So we sort of decided to buy a car and drive back to where he lives. So yeah, drove from Banff all the way across to... Uh, to Halifax, which took about two and a half months, which was fantastic. Saw some unreal spots. Now, we often say that, you know, our lived experience shapes kind of what we, we do. So that was, I imagine, before before your teaching degree. What did you what did you learn in that year of living abroad that maybe informed your next steps? So your teaching or, or as you as you progressed as an educator? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I didn't have a teaching degree at that time, but I'd actually um, just finished a business degree. So um, it was an inter- interesting experience, I suppose. My background in Australia was growing up in a, in a small country town, so I was surrounded by people that had known me all my life. Um, and a part of travelling was really to to find out sort of who I was and to have some independence and to meet people that didn't know my background and um, to explore that. Um, and I, I found Canada was a really fantastic place to do that. Um, 
Canadians are very similar to Australians, very open, um, very caring people. Um, but I just can't speak highly enough of the, the year that I spent here. Um, wasn't all rosy, I suppose, as well. I remember when I, and I think I, I spoke about this yesterday, that one of the things that I, I did was uh, I tried to get a job as a housekeeper at the hotel we're at at the moment, the Bamp Springs, um, and had a business degree and couldn't even get a job cleaning the rooms here. So... <laughs> Um, it's sort of interesting to come back and, and actually have a speaking engagement at a hotel that didn't think I was good enough to clean their rooms. <laughs> you showed them, eh? Yeah, I think maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, that kind of leads me into my next one. A lot of people think that teaching is kind of a calling. It's, it's, it's something you, you kind of learn that, oh, yeah, this is, this is where I need to be. Um, we talked a little bit about your experience going abroad and things like that, but, but maybe walk through. Was there a moment when you kind of knew that teaching was for you that 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 education was was a field you wanted to go you, you talk about going through a business degree what, what was it that brought you to the teaching profession yeah so I don't have any teachers in my family so it wasn't a, a family thing but but um when I was doing my teaching deg- sorry my uh, business degree one of the things that I was doing is I was working at, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be here but we have out of school hours care so before and after school care so with working families they'll drop their kids off at school in the morning um, and they'll have people looking after them so I was doing that while I was at university Um, so working with elementary school age children every morning and afternoon and then on the school holidays I'd work a holiday program so for my entire business degree I was connected to elementary school children and I just found the longer that I was working in that the more that I thought well I actually do want to work with um with young kids. And so when I finished my business degree, I travelled, like we spoke about, I come to Canada. Um, by the time I moved back home, I was pretty sure that that's what I wanted to do was education. Um, interestingly, I had a lot of people try to talk me out of it. Who's that? T- tell me about that. That's that's interesting. And, and by the way, that's not uncommon. I've, I've heard a lot about that. In fact, I've even seen some research saying that the single largest barrier to high school kids going into the education field are their high school teachers tell them that they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, so, so who is it telling you that you shouldn't go into education? Well, my parents were really supportive, but but my extended family, there was there was quite a few people that thought I'd wait I, I would waste a business degree if I went into teaching. And I think it was probably a money thing as well, thought that you know, there was more money to be made in the corporate world than there would be in education. So it was seen as sort of a, a lesser career option at that time. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely have heard that same story before. So um, tell me about tell me about what you're doing right now. Tell me what your, uh, what your work is right now at the university and, and maybe just bring us through that. Yeah, so my work at the university is um, quite varied, which is good, keeps it interesting. So the sort of the main things that I do there is um, I lecture in the, the Master of Instructional Leadership um, and I work closely with John Hattie and Steve Dinham in their subjects. Um, the, other, the other thing that I do at the University of Melbourne is work within uh, a thing that we call the, the University of Melbourne Network of Schools. And the network of schools is essentially every year the university has 20 schools that they work closely with. Um, the schools are cross-sector, so we have independent private schools, um, Catholic schools, as well as Department of Education schools. Um, that come together and, and, and work on an, on a common area of interest. Um, so so we work, go through a process of about six months of, of working out, well, what are the things that, that you really want to grapple with and explore more, more deeply with the, the academics at the university? Um, and then I usually work with a, a group of six or seven schools out of that broader 20 on, a, on an improvement project um, that could be as varied as things like data literacy. Um, there's also a group that we're looking at, at STEM, um, 
uh, and various other things, um, critical thinking. So, so that's a really interesting project to be involved in. And one of the things that really I really like about the project, it's the first opportunity I've had to work in a cross-sector improvement project. So, so to cut through some of the system initiatives and actually just have discussions about what good teaching and learning is, it really gives a good opportunity for that to take place. That's actually a really interesting thing. It's rare that I hear that universities are actually working directly with schools in schools and they have those partnerships. That would be interesting. What kind of questions or what kind of, what kind of role do you think that academics, people working in universities, is it, is it, is it you giving them structures, but, but does it also kind of feedback and inform your work about what's going on? Tell me about what you think you get out of working with schools in the university setting. Yeah, so I think well, well, one of the backdrops to to why this has happened is there was a ministerial report in Australia that was released talking about initial teacher education. So, you know, how can we improve um, pre-service education? And and one of the the recommendations was that we should have structured mutually beneficial partnerships between higher education um, providers and schools. So so that's sort of an underpinning principle of what we're doing at the University of Melbourne is to to make sure that we have these strengthened partnerships. And really it's about making sure that then the pre-service students have a really consistent approach to what's happening. So it's not like they're, they're at the university and you're told, well, this is what good teaching and learning is, but then going into schools and getting told something completely different. So we're trying to have a stronger connection between the schools and the university so it's a more seamless connection for the pre-service teachers. Um, but, I mean, it's – yeah, it's, 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 it's a really interesting project and, and one of the things that – that has really struck me is it doesn't matter whether you're a high fee paying private school in a really affluent part of Melbourne or you're a low SES school in a rural setting, you can still have common areas that you can work on and learn from each other on. Um, and so that's been one of the really great things is seeing schools that are sometimes put up on a pedestal, they're being great schools, learning things off schools that may not get the same recognition in our sector. And they can have really close working relationships and learn a lot from each other. I bet. Hey, what are some of the things that you've seen? So you talk about these, um, let's say, schools that are they're in more affluent areas and schools. What are what are some might I ask the of the of the topics that you found have been common between those two schools where they can come together? Maybe just uh, the biggest ones you've seen. Yeah, well, I think, and I suppose that's where where my work has evolved into is I think in education we're we're getting some pretty solid research around what the what is um, in the Victorian Department of Education, which is the the state that I work in. They have the high impact teaching strategies. If you look at Mazzano's work or John Hattie's work, it's I think we've got a really good sense of of the what you know. So there's not a school I've walked into a school for the last four years that hasn't done some sort of work around learning intentions and success criteria. Um, you know, feedback, formative assessment, these sort of things. It doesn't really matter where you go in the world. People are talking about it. So the what's pretty solid in, in a lot of ways. But I think what we, we're really grappling with and struggling with in, in education systems is, is the how. And that's how do we actually implement these things effectively. So, so for something like learning intentions, you know, while schools have worked on it, when you go in, quite often it's a really low-level approach that it might be that it's mandated that they write it up on the board at the start of every lesson and you say, well, is that really going to get you those effect sizes? Like, is that really going to impact student outcomes the way that the research says? So, so a lot of my work is actually going back and saying, let's look at some of these things that we know work 
But let's see if we can get more sophisticated about how we implement it in schools in an increasingly complex way. So, you know, if you haven't worked on this area, this might be a really good starting point, you know, to entry jump into it. But if you've already been doing that, what's the next level of work in this space? And I think that's where, you know, and John... John Hattie would, you know, acknowledges this when you hear him talk. He talks about it. It sort of worries him that his research is misinterpreted in a lot of ways, that it's become this very surface-level sort of scattergun approach to say, well, you know, let's rank his, his effect size and say, we do this, we do this, we do this. The question is, are you doing it well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked – what I'm hearing a lot more in, in the research and, and, and from people is – is more talk around those organizational structures. So I'm glad you brought that up, and and that's an interesting part of your work for sure. Now, you mentioned John Hattie, so I think that uh, congratulations are in order. Uh, just graduated or just came back with your doctorate uh, under under Hattie, and I heard a, a couple, maybe a, a few other people. But, I mean, I, I don't want to get into your doctorate and you outlining everything because I know that's a huge amount of work. But if you were looking at your doctoral research and you said, okay, what is the biggest takeaway? What is the one thing that that you would like schools to hear about what you were looking at and what you were researching? What would that be? Well, I think one of the things about coming to Canada that's been really interesting is that you're embarking on a similar journey to what we're doing in Australia. And we've, you know, when I started teaching the the way that we would design units of study was built around, you know, um, using backward design and those sorts of processes to sort of talk about what does a student need to know and be able to do. So we're looking essentially at skills and knowledge. And one of the big game changes in, in the curriculum back in Australia is we have this capabilities curriculum. So, you know, we, know, we not only now need to teach and assess skills and knowledge, but also capabilities. When we're talking about the capabilities in, in, in the Australian curriculum, we're talking about things like critical and creative thinking. So it's been nice to come over here and and see that you guys are, are, are grappling with it with that those ideas as well. For me, I find it really interesting that my background is teach professional learning and school improvement, that we need to make sure that we're also thinking about those capabilities at an adult level as well. So how are we actually supporting teachers to become critical thinkers about their practice? Um, and that was one of the big takeaways from my my doctoral research, which was looking at design thinking as a, a form of professional learning, was really making sure that the teachers that get the most out of inquiry processes are the ones that are actually doing critical thinking. It's about their disposition, so they're curious. They're really looking at at innovating. They've got a bias towards action. So thinking about how we can cultivate those sorts of dispositions intentionally with our teachers is really important. What are some of the structures? So you talk about these dispositions or or whatnot. What are some of the structures that you found... Uh, because you've been working with with schools around this idea that that cultivated that type of thinking in teachers. What are perhaps some of the um, the the actual protocols or strategies that you found effective to get these teachers being a bit more metacognitive about their learning, being a bit more reflective, and uh, to do as just as you said, can can we can we put in place? Do you think some some things to to encourage this thinking from teachers? Yeah, definitely. And I think if you look at um, the Agile Schools website that Simon Breakspear has put together, that there's there's a lot of tools in there that can actually help you work through some of these processes. And listening to Simon speak yesterday, he was talk- talking about having a you know a healthy scepticism about some of the research. So it's it's encouraging that it's it's not putting things on the table and talking about them like they're absolute. It's looking at well, you know, this research says this, but this research might say that. So how are we going to work through that? And what does that then mean for our context? So it's actually putting some power back in the hands of the teachers to say, 
you know, we can make some decisions about this based on what we know about our context and where we're currently at. We can actually work through some of these things. So it's encouraging them to be um, not sceptical, but but to, to really critically analyse the literature, literature that's being put in front of them um, and to go deeper into it. Like I think, you know, going back to learning intentions, which I mentioned earlier, you know, finding research that's looking at learning intentions in a rural context, if that's your school, what's the research that's been done on that? Or what's the research about learning intentions in a, in a for English language learners? Finding some research about that. So it's not just this top line that that's not really specific to your context. Looking at what, what's been done in, in Canada, what research has been done in your province in, in the type of context that you're currently working in, that becomes really important. So to drill down deeper into it. Absolutely. You talk about these mindsets, and, and I just want to dig into that a little bit because uh, you talk about this mindset and, and, and being a reflective practitioner and getting teachers to go back on their thinking. Uh, can, can you just define that term? Because I think, it, at least in North American context, as soon as you start saying mindset, you, people jump to Carol Dweck and, and this idea of uh, a, a, not an idea, but they have a defined notion of what a mindset is. Is that what you're talking about here? Is this, is this mindset of constant improvement or that we need to work on what we're um, what we're not so good at as opposed to working on what we are already good at or, or is it something bigger or do you have a different definition of that? Yeah, it's, and, and it's interesting when you actually look at the literature around mindsets and dispositions and capabilities. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. So depending on who you're reading, um, I, the, the way that I use mindsets when I'm talking about design thinking is because that's what's come out of Stanford. They, they call them design thinking mindsets. Um, I suppose in my PhD, I, I talked more about dispositions um, and I, and you know Perkins's work out of Harvard becomes quite important, um, and he talks about some different parts of of a disposition. So it's, um, you know, have you got an inclination towards it? So just because you know that having a bias towards action is actually a good thing, does it actually mean that you still do it? So it's not just about it's and and even if you talk about Carol Dweck's work and mindsets, in a lot of schools it's taught as a knowledge base. So you go into the schools and the kids can actually rattle off what a growth mindset is. But it's it's not about having the knowledge. It's about having the disposition. So it's actually, it's a situational thing, a growth mindset. So do you actually use a growth mindset when you have an opportunity to? Yeah. So it's not important that the kids can all talk about it. What's important is when there's an opportunity that arises that they can either go, I can have a fixed mindset to that or a growth mindset. I will choose the growth mindset. That's what's important. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, Carol Dweck has come out as you know, um in the past war, uh in the past few years just saying how how her research has been misinterpreted. And it seems like a theme here, Mr. John Hattie and dude Carol Dweck and they're all they're all out bring out this research that perhaps doesn't get interpreted the correct way or ways that they intended and then they have to come back and be, "Oh, actually, we were thinking about this." So. But that's and John encourages that. Like that's he, so going back to what we were talking about with the critical thinking, like he wants people to do that with his research. So, you know, some of it's quite provocative. Like he'll talk about things like, you know, his research shows that that, um, that content knowledge doesn't matter as a teacher. Hmm. But when you hear him talk about that, he's like, well, why is that so? And everyone says that it should matter. You should have to have good, really good content knowledge to be a good teacher. Right. So he would say, well and I've heard him speak about this about a month ago, he was saying that the reason that it doesn't matter is because quite often classrooms are set up around surface-level understanding. Now, if you've got a classroom that's set up around 
deep understanding of content knowledge, then the teacher has to have a deep understanding of content knowledge. So, like, you can hear the soundbite and say content knowledge doesn't matter, mm-hmm. but you've got to dig deeper into that and say, but why is that the case? And it's because classrooms are often built around surface-level understanding. I could teach physics without a great understanding of physics if it's just about surface-level understanding of physics. Right. But if that classroom is built around a deep understanding of, of physics, I would struggle. And and I like that idea of that deeper in surface. I mean, obviously, it comes in uh, in Hattie and and uh, some other people would say we need to learn both fast and slow mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of thing. What? How do we how do we balance that? How do you think that we can encourage people to really think about that deep learning or that slow learning? At the same time as, as there is there is a, a certain level of surface knowledge we need, how do we shift the mindset or the disposition, as you said, of teachers to get into thinking about deeper level learning? Have you had some experience with perhaps some structures or is it, is, do you think it's just uh, knowledge they don't have or is it just cueing? What, do you, what, are you, what have you seen as effective? Yeah, so going back to, to John's work, and he would talk about that you need both. So we don't want to get in a situation where we're talking about deep learning, but it's a cost of, at, at the cost of surface learning. So we want to be moving between them. And and he talks about actually in every lesson, we should be moving between surface and deep. So not saying, you know, we've done some surface level work at the start of this unit. Now we get into the deep learning that we're always moving between the two. That's the most effective classroom in, in John's opinion. Um but I find it, yeah, look, some of the work that we've done at the Graduate School of Education at Melbourne University out of the Assessment Research Centre has, has looked at this idea. And, and so, so what we do is we, we look at developing progressions of learning um, and we use cognitive taxonomies to do that. So it's like, well, what would some quality criteria look like that would be at the, the lower end of some of the cognitive taxonomies? And then also thinking about what would they look like at the top end? So you might be using a cognitive taxonomy like Bloom's, which is fairly popular. Um, and it's you know you're starting to look at those higher levels and the critical thinking levels. Um, you might be using something like and, and John Hattie's big on the solo taxonomy, but being really clear about what it looks like. So we're not getting in a situation where we're sort of talking about oh we're doing critical thinking today. We can get really precise on well you're doing critical thinking as soon as you're getting kids to do some analysis, some evaluation, some synthesis. Like these things are really clear. So if you're asking kids to do that, you are asking them to critical think critically think in that learning area. Now, when you're working with teachers, what does that look like? So you're, are you developing these lesson plans together? Or are you bringing a, a bunch of teachers together to, to, to develop that understanding? Or is it a lesson plan or is it, um, is it maybe a structure? What does that look like transmitting or, or helping those teachers put it into place in their practice? Yeah, okay. So, so one way we would do it is to actually develop the progression. So you need to have the underlying progression of learning that sits behind what you're doing. <clears throat> so so when you've got that underlying progression, then you can start to, to map out what, what the student can do and then what they're ready to learn next. Um, so that can look like rubrics, which I know are quite a dirty word in education, but the, it's, it can if you've got a quality rubric, it can become a unit planner. So you can say, I can know where this student is and I can look at what they're ready to do next and then that's what I develop my learning activity or learning experiences around. But not only that, once you've got a learning progression the students can then start to self-regulate their learning so they can start to look at, well, this is where I think I'm at and this is what I think I'd need to work on next. Um, and unless you've actually got that learning progression that's transparent and clear for everyone in the room, kids will never be able to self-regulate their learning. So I think we use words 
like self-regulation. I think even if you look at sort of the three feedback questions, um, the where am I going to next, kids can't do that unless they know what the progression is. And quite often we talk about self-regulation and use that sort of language in schools, but we haven't clearly laid out what the progression looks like. So that's a part of what we do is make sure let's make that clear. That comes out of Patrick Griffin's research um, that he did in Australia and he, he looked at, you know, what was happening in Australian classrooms and the most disadvantaged kids in Australian classrooms were the top 25%. And that's not the gifted, that's the top 25% in, in every classroom. And, and what was really happening to those kids over time is they'd, they'd, they'd start to plateau and in some cases go backwards. Um, and so when they sort of delved into this deeper they realised that what was happening was these high-achievement students in every classroom, the teachers didn't know what to do with them next. Right. It's like, well, I know they're bright, but I'm not sure what to do with them. But then in that research, they also went and interviewed people that were moving you know, every student in their classroom. And, and really what the difference was with those teachers is they had a clear progression. They said, oh, those kids over there, once they can do that, this is what I get them to do next. So they had a really good mental model about the learning progression that, that, that was laid out. So that's where the assessment research then and then said, we, we need to start putting these down on paper and actually writing what the progression is. Right. And, and that's what a lot of their work has been based on over the last five or six years. And I love the fact that you guys are helping not only the teachers to communicate what that progression is, but it sounds like you're, you're, you're helping the teachers to understand what that progression is, progression is themselves. So you can't communicate what the progression is if you don't understand it yourself as a teacher first. Totally. And so that's, that's where it starts. It starts with the teacher expertise and the teacher knowledge so that it comes down to the students. I love that. Yeah, and it might even be like when you're working with maths people, and I've been doing this you know, recently, is sometimes they've been really successful in maths and it's, the, the difficulty for them can be actually breaking it down, saying what are the prerequisite skills that you would need to be able to do this task that you're giving to the student. So it's, it's a real knowledge-building exercise and it's um, something that we always do in teams. It's not something that we'd want individual teachers to be doing because it, it takes time to work out that developmental continuum. You know, what, right. what is the learning yeah. progression that we'd expect to see? And look, you know, there's already good resources out there, like First Steps, which when I studied in Western Australia, that was a, a literacy resource. They had a really good continuum for learning. So there's already some of these things out there um, that you can use. It doesn't mean you have to build them all from scratch. We look at the curriculum um, and just try to get it down to a finer grain that actually means that it can be meaningful for, for teachers and for students to use. And that comes back to your point of we have a good conception of the what, but we, what we need a little bit of help where is the how. So how do we put them in place? These, this literacy resource that exists, um, they, they know it or we have access to it, but what they don't necessarily have is how, how do I make this come alive in my classroom? How do I effectively use that? So I love, I love that you're coming back on that same idea. And I want to uh, move on to this next point, which again involves these the teachers, and, and it's something that you said the other day that I, I didn't have a great conception of, and that's educational design research. And this, I think, is getting back into not only teachers understanding the curriculum and how to do this, but it's also them perhaps seeing them more as action researchers. Tell me about about maybe what, first of all, educational design research is, and your term there, and and what that might look like. Yeah. In yes. the schools you worked with. Yeah, so educational design research is is a fairly new methodology. So it's only about 10 years old, a little bit longer maybe now. Um, and it's, it's, it's similar to action research, but I'd say that the two things that, that sort of set it apart are that that with educational design research, it's, it's a partnership between practitioners and researchers, which is not always the case when we're talking about action research. Action research can be... 
um, a teacher doing something on their own without the support. Um, if you look at the literature around action research, that can be one of the criticisms that, of action research is that the teachers don't often have the skills and dispositions to be able to undertake the research with or the action research um, with rigour. So that that's a little problematic. So educational design research gets around that by saying, well, the practitioners are still doing research, but it's it's in a supportive framework where they're working with a researcher. Um, the other thing that, that sort of sets educational design research apart from action research or some action research is that it has a, a strong emphasis on utility. Um, and so what we're really looking at is that the research cycle is useful for the end user. Now, the end user in educational design research is, is students. So what we're really looking at is making sure we're analysing, is there actually an impact of this work on the student? Um, which some action research doesn't focus on. So action research, if you're th- thinking about things like self-study, um, might be that you're just reflecting on on how it's made you feel, um, have you improved your practices, whereas design research would say, well, actually, you should be looking at has it had an impact on the students that you're working with. So they're sort of the two things that really set it apart. Yeah, that sounds great. I- I'm really excited to hear that universities are working closer with practitioners which is in the classroom i'm really excited to hear that i think that's a an amazing model that i'm i'm interested to follow now one of the things that you you spoke about with that is you know this university person this researcher comes in building this design and you talk about in 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 some of your presentations about there actually being a dip in achievement at the beginning where we come in and I could see if there was that achievement dip at the beginning of an implementation phase where teachers might get a bit frustrated and they might work on all these, you know, these high tower university people. They don't, they don't get it. This isn't working. But then as they kept with it, the achievement did actually go up. What are some of the things that you were able to do to try and keep the motivation up with these teachers to get through that implementation gap in perhaps some of their small level achievements so that overall and long term they were getting these these higher level achievements with this new intervention or strategy or practice or whatnot yeah so in in the research that i did in california where we were looking at a a district-wide educational design research project one of the the data collection methods that we used was we um, we collected a survey four times over the year. So same survey, the teachers filled it out uh, four times through the year. Between time one and time two, the teachers actually reported that their teaching practices went backwards. Um, so we found that really interesting. Um, and the way that we interpreted that was actually that when the teachers got deeper into the work, they actually recalibrated where they were at. So in time one, which was at the start of the year when we first did the survey, they actually overinflated where they thought their teaching practices were. When we started to get into the work, they realised, hang on, I've got a fair bit to learn here. So they actually pulled themselves back and said, I think this is actually where we're at. From that time two or that wave two data onwards, they kept reporting an increase, pretty dramatic increase um, as the year went on. So I don't think they actually did go backwards because the other data set that you can look at is that they said they went backwards but the students' mathematical um, practices were improving. Right. So it's like, well, how can your teaching practices get worse, but your student practices can get better? So so we, we, the way that we interpreted that was that it was a, a recalibration. They'd realised that there was still a lot to learn in how they could teach mathematics. And do you chalk that up just to you know cognitive dissonance about learning something new and, and that whole idea of learning kind of being a bit uncomfortable because you learn things about yourself? Or do you think that there was 
do you think that was maybe an initial resistance to to change or what do you think the underlying causes of that was outside of just you know they they didn't or they overinflated their initial do you think they were over, overconfident yeah i think so i yeah. think that we like we're working with maths teachers so they they were pretty confident that they were doing a good job and by and large they were but we what we had was um a new set of standards that had come in to the states at the time and um and there was some instructional shifts associated with that that were quite clearly articulated and when we started to unpack them they realized that they could get more sophisticated at how they actually enacted those in the classroom so um yeah i really think that it was just a, a recalibration um but it was yeah and when you, when you're talking about dissonance i suppose for me getting back to when we were talking about the progressions with um with students it's the same with teachers i think the way to get around dissonance is to make things achievable um and and what we can do is we can work on really big ideas in education but what we've got to do is drill it back down to say what's something i can do tomorrow or next week in my classroom um and when i've done that and i've embedded that what's the next thing that i can then try and look at embedding so i think the way to get around dissonance is to to make sure that we're breaking things down with and, and i'm not saying i'm coming in and saying this is what you should do but we break it down in collaborative groups. We talk about, you know, what are these big ideas? Um, might be dialogic teaching in a mathematics classroom. All right, well, what's the first step for us? What, what could we try next week that had set us on this journey of starting to do some dialogic teaching in a, in a mathematics classroom? And they can be really simple first steps that any teacher could walk away and try. Right. Just do something. Do, yeah, do yeah, one which thing is, to improve your practice. Which is one of the, the design thinking uh, mindsets is have a bias towards action. So actually say, let's... You know, let's prototype something. Let's talk about what this could look like and let's get in and try it. That's great. I want to move away from perhaps your research or, or maybe it will be related to your research, but what is one thing about education that you believe is true that most other people would disagree with you about? Is there anything about teaching and learning that you, you've come to know or you come to believe is true that most other people wouldn't or maybe it's because they haven't got there or they just don't think the same way have you have you noticed anything where your thinking is different than the norm oh no that's a really tough question um yeah i i don't know i i I mean i work in the master of instructional leadership so for me it's been a really nice shift in in australia over the last decade that we've gone back to to instructional leaders where you know, if you want to be a leader in the Australian education system, the quickest way to do that is to know teaching and learning really deeply. So when people talk to me about my career and, you know, other aspects, that like pre-service teachers might say, look, you know, I want to be a principal. It's like, well, be really good in the classroom. It's a really odd thing in education. The quickest way to get out of a classroom is to be really good in the classroom. Um, so that's been a shift, but that's a shift back in Australia where we've, we've gone back to that. I suppose one of the other things that I find odd in education and um and i work with an academic duncan simons um, back at melbourne university and he, he does a lot of work around the investigative approach in in mathematics and i think inquiry and, and investigation um can get a bad rap and i don't think people really understand how much explicit instruction still should take place when we're using inquiry in a classroom so while duncan talks about the investigative approach there's a lot of explicit instruction that should take place when you're going through that cycle. And I think that's something that we don't often talk about. We see it as this 
dichotomy of you're either doing inquiry or you're doing explicit instruction, not that you should be doing explicit instruction through your inquiry processes. And so, you know, if you are going to do the investigative approach to, to teaching and learning or an inquiry process, that you really need to up certain teacher practices and, and those sorts of things are, you know, you need to be watching those students really closely to get your teaching points to know, well, what am I going to do my explicit instruction on? And I don't think that's something that we discuss widely in education at the moment. Yeah, I agree. I love your uh, I love your comment around uh, the best way out of the classroom is to be great in the classroom. And uh, that kind of leads well to my next question, which is when you think of the term master teacher, who comes to mind and, and why? Who's, who's a master teacher for Dr. Ryan Dunn? Um, well, that's a good question. I, look, not one person would come to mind, but I, I suppose when, you know, the last few years that I was in the classroom, I was um, considered to be quite a quite an expert teacher. And, and one of the, the jobs that I was given was to do some team teaching with a second-year teacher that the principal at the time was a bit worried about. Um, and, and when we started to work together, I learned more off her in the two years that we team taught than probably anyone else I've ever worked with. So, so when we think of master teacher, I, I, I think that I can come, you can learn from any, anyone. Um, and years experience doesn't often equal expertise. It can, don't get me wrong. It definitely can, but you can learn a lot of first and second year teachers as well. So like for me, Christina was a, was a huge turning point in my career like some of the things that she did were were exceptional um and at the time I would have been considered probably one of the strongest teachers in the school and she was probably considered one of the weaker teachers in the school but it just wasn't the case um people hadn't actually seen her practices they were making judgments on her personality not on her practice interesting Uh, yeah absolutely and getting into the classroom and learning I love that answer great thanks for that I got a couple questions now that are a bit faster, so we'll we'll keep you on your feet. Uh, I got five of them. Try and answer quick, not too much. So what's one of your favorite education-related apps or a website that you go? Favorite education app or website? Uh, There's a mass one at the moment that's just been released in Australia called the Resolve website, which is looking at inquiry through mathematics, which has got some really nice resources in there. Awesome. Uh, what is a book that you quote or refer to, or that you have marked up and you and you refer to the most? Um, oh, at the moment, I'm reading um, Bill Lucas's work on creativity, and I'm finding that really interesting. Awesome. What is a school or an educational system that you haven't visited yet that you'd love to visit or learn more about? Um, yeah, I've sort of I'm a little re- resistant to to policy pinching from international places so I, I think like I've, I've loved coming to to Canada and get a sense of what you're doing but it's I think the way to really build a strong system is to to focus on the already great things that your system do yeah. not necessarily so Canada doesn't need to come to Australia to learn what's going on or other places in the world you can actually find your pockets of exceptional practice and, and scale them that's great what's one thing that you do every day that uh, makes you better at your work what keeps you Healthy, what keeps you well so you can attack the work that you do? Try to get some work-life balance and make sure I, I spend some time devoted to my family. Great. And what's, uh, what's an organization or a person who's, who's kind of inspiring you right now? Who's, is there anyone out there who's kind of, you really liking what they're doing? 
Yeah, well, I've been lucky enough to work with uh, Simon Breakspear over the last eight months, and I think he's doing some outstanding work. Um, and we're starting to look at doing some work around implementation together. Um, Bill Lucas, who I mentioned before, I think he's doing some fantastic work around um, creativity and, and, and other sort of learning dispositions like that. And obviously been heavily influenced um, having John Hattie as a PhD supervisor and working closely with him. So he still influences uh, the way that I look at education and think about education. That's great. So what's, uh, you touched on this, but what's next for, what's next for you? Uh, doctorate done. Uh, what are some of the, the next questions or problems that you're looking at researching or, or, or not tackling, but, but investigating in the coming perhaps months, perhaps years? Yeah, so one of the things for me is doing a lot more work around um, implementation um, at scale, so looking at school implementation but also system implementation. Um, I suppose my passion project over the next three or four years will be also looking at how we can um, better offer quality teacher professional learning for for our rural educators in Australia. Um, I think a lot of people talk about it, um, but not a lot of people are actually doing anything about it. So... One of the projects that I'm on uh, back home this year is working with a group of schools that are about four and a half hours outside of Melbourne. Um, so it's it's quite challenging in that it's a fair time commitment to get there, but we want to really sort of develop a model that can be meaningful for them, um, but also something that we can scale and, and work with, with larger groups. So I think really supporting our rural educators is something that is front of mind for me at the moment. That's great. So uh, thanks a lot for for speaking to me today. What are some ways that uh, people can connect with you if they're interested in your work or interested in what's going on? How how would they get be able to get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, so at Done Education. So if they look on Twitter, they can um, follow me on there and certainly send me a message, and I'd be happy to talk about teaching and learning with anyone. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Have a uh, great rest of your trip and a, and a, fl- a safe travels back to che- Australia. Cheers. Thanks for having me.